Amen. Praise the Lord. I, I, uh, I'm going to jump right in. And um, I, have, I have, I'm going to, as I said in the first service, do all I can to contain myself. And uh, with God's grace, help, <laughs> maybe I will. Amen. I, um, yeah, let's just turn to, to Daniel chapter 2. We're in Daniel's, uh, Daniel's gospel. Daniel chapter 2 and 3, chapter 2 and 3. This morning, I am not going to give you one foundational scripture verse that we will build on and look at, but instead, um, what we're going to allow the Holy Spirit to speak to us this morning is found in these two chapters, Daniel 2 and 3. A few years ago, I did just a two-week, two-part little series kind of thing and entitled Thriving in Your Babylon, and it was really about the life of Daniel and, of course, his friends, and he had many friends who were in Babylon with him, other Jewish faithful followers of God and people of God, and they, and how they survived, not even survived, but they thrived, and they succeeded as God's people living in Babylon. Of course, Babylon, just to, to throw this out there real quick and let you know, is this an amazing picture, it's a symbol of, of our world and the culture and all the, 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 the things that are pressed upon us with these views and attitudes, worldviews in particular, that are antithetical and even they're opposed to God and they press against us, they push us, they prod us to do things that are in violation of God's standard and His character. And so Babylon is a picture of that. In fact, in Revelation, Babylon is not revealed and painted in a positive light when it comes to the end times and the return of Jesus and God's people. Babylon is not a pretty place. It's, it's often associated with wickedness and, and, uh, and, and ungodliness. And so Daniel is living in Babylon with his friends. And I want to focus, and a few years ago I didn't even maybe but mention them in a few sentences, on his three friends in chapter 3 who are Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Or Benny, as we'll call him, right? We can call him Benny. But we're going to talk about his three friends. And one of the things, you may be familiar with the story in this, this narrative here that's recorded with King Nebuchadnezzar is this. He was a great king. He had a large kingdom, as we know, and we are familiar even historically, but as we look in the book of Daniel. Very prosperous, wealthy. Education was at a height. It was in a great educational system. They had money. He had resources. He was expanding. It was beautiful. He was powerful. And Nebuchadnezzar has a dream in chapter 2. And he doesn't know what it's all about. You ever had one of those? Maybe not quite like this one. But he had a dream and he wants to know what it means. Here's what Nebuchadnezzar does. Nebuchadnezzar, he calls all his magicians and his, his interpreters of dreams, these Maybe they're psychologists or psychiatrists. I have no idea what they were exactly, but they were magicians in, in the kingdom. And he calls them over and he asks them, listen guys, all of you, you've got to come and you've got to tell me, I'm so troubled, what my dream was and what it means. What? And that was the command. You can read, he commands them. Did you know that Daniel records that when he gives this order to his magicians and the interpreters, that if they are not able to tell him his dream and what it means, gruesome things will happen to them. You'll find it in the text. 
That's how troubled he was, and he wanted to know what happens. Now, David, and, and these are the wise men, the wise guys in his kingdom. Daniel and his friends are also considered in this group. And there comes a point in time, and Daniel realizes, and he's, he wants God to move with compassion, and he wants to have compassion on himself and his friends. And so he prays with his friends, by the way, not Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, but it's Hananiah and two other friends. And he prays with them that God would give them favor and wisdom and, and to know what to do. Isn't it great that in this life, living in a, a current modern-day Babylon, if you will, just a world system, that we have friends that we can pray and seek God with? That's, don't miss that principle in, in, the, in the whole book of Daniel and Daniel's life and journey when he kept getting promoted and all the things that God was doing through him. He always had friends that he would pray with and got counsel with God through prayer and by together looking into the law of God. How important that is for us today as we navigate and move forward. And so they get that favor, and he requests that he would be able to tell the king what his dream was and what it means. And you know what happens? God grants him that. And when Nebuchadnezzar finds out, Daniel goes and he tells him, I'm going to tell you what your dream is and what it means. And when he tells him and what his dream is and what it means, he goes and and Nebuchadnezzar, after Daniel tells him, You saw this huge statue, head of gold, silver chest. Then you had his midsection, it was was, uh, bronze, and the feet were iron and clay, and moving down in in strength, right, and and even beauty, right? But he tells him about this, and it was all about Nebuchadnezzar and his kingdom, ultimately. And what happens is, is that Nebuchadnezzar, and don't miss this, he gets charmed, but he's not changed. He gets charmed, but he's not changed. I'm going to be bold enough, because I don't want to be some weird Pentecostal preacher, like, I feel God telling me, and I, you know, whatever. And again, I, don't misunderstand me. I, there's a place. But I, I, I'm going to just go there. There, might, there just might be somebody sitting here today who, boy, you have been charmed by God, not once, but twice, but three, but many, but 40, 30, 40 years, but you're still not changed. I don't know who that is. God knows, and you know. But you've been charmed. You know what I mean. You're blown away by what God does. Like Nebuchadnezzar, How could he even said? There is no other God like Daniel's God that can reveal this kind of a mystery. And it's an amazing thing. And, we're gonna, and this God is to be worshipped. And he, he makes this proclamation and he's blown away. He's tickled pink and he's pleasured by the fact that, he was, that, that God revealed to, to Daniel and God can move in such a mighty way and do this thing that no one else can do and no one else in his kingdom. And he's charmed by this incredible feat of God through Daniel. And as long as things are going really well and things are good and miracles happen in our lives and God keeps providing and things are great, well, we we remain charmed, but inside we're still not changed. And that might be some of you. I know I'm not speaking to all of you, but there might be even one. It might be many. We can fall into that trap, even our relationship, where we are charmed by God, but we are not willing to be changed by God. God help us to not fall into that trap. 
You know, where we are mesmerized, we're enamored, we're, we're captivated by, 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 by God. Not just someone or something, but by God, because He made us feel good, and He benefited us in some way, and it's all awesome. Nebuchadnezzar was charmed by God's prophetic dream that was revealed to him. Now, Nebuchadnezzar is not the only one in Scripture who was charmed but not changed. Now, I can give you... Oh, it's 11 what? No, I won't go there. I can give you tons of examples. But there, let me just jump to the New Testament and point out three quick cases of individuals who were charmed but not changed or people who were charmed and not changed. At least three, right, that I can think of. In John chapter 6, Jesus is preaching and teaching and he, he is revealing and he, he, he states one of his seven I am statements, which... He was making himself equal with God and revealing that he was one God with God and he was God in the flesh. And he says, I am the bread of life there eventually, right in John chapter 6. But he's talking about this bread. And he does it right after he performs a miracle. The miracle was feeding all these people and they were charmed beyond, I mean, to the just exploding in their mind with like, how can this possibly be? Just like Nebuchadnezzar, we're totally pleased and attracted to this individual who will provide for me and, 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 and charmed by God's provision to satisfy the flesh only. Now, how do I know that? If you read John chapter 6, the Bible makes it clear as well in other accounts in the gospel recordings that the crowds, many of the crowds, they love to be with Jesus. They were charmed by him. Because they were so looking forward to just what they could get from him. What he could provide for them in the immediate moment. Like the bread when they were hungry. And the dialogue that goes on between Jesus and these charmed crowds is simply this. Jesus, keep doing a miracle. We'll believe in God. We'll believe in you. And Jesus says, I'm not doing a miracle. Because all you want and all that charms you is my hand and God's provision and not my heart and not who I am. I'm not giving you a sign. You can read it there. But they're charmed, but they're not changed. And I know that because other gospel records, as well as John, that many in the crowd, of course, we have cases that believed in Jesus, but the vast majority did not believe on him. They were not changed. They were charmed. Can I keep going? Acts chapter 8 and verse 20. Simon Peter, I mean, uh, Peter, the, the, the apostle, and the apostles are there, and, and they're doing ministry, and there's an amazing... Uh, Simon the sorcerer, he's in town. He's a man there, he's a magician. And he's around and he's, I mean, he profits from doing all this magic and doing all kinds of crazy, weird things. I'll just leave it at that. And he's following along and he sees what Peter is doing, what the apostles are doing, driving out demons, these miracles, setting people free through God's power, God's using them. And Simon wants this power. And he's charmed by the power of God, not the person of God. He's charmed by the power because he sees God's power as something he can profit off of. And he is blown away. I've got to have that power. Forget the person. I want the power. And the dialogue goes on between Peter and Simon, the apostle Peter. And Peter says, listen, I know what you want. But maybe God will be gracious. And if you just repent and get your heart right, maybe God will be merciful to you. 
Whew, strong statement, harsh words. His motives, he was charmed. There was no change. There was not even any shifting in him. It was all about him. It was all about just getting God's power for his own benefit, and that's what he wanted. He, and Simon was charmed by God's power so that he could be enriched at the expense of others by having this power. That's all he wanted. Not God, he wanted power. Real quick, false teachers in the New Testament and the epistles are addressed over and over again by Peter, by John, by Paul. Over and over again, false teachers. And especially in the last days, Paul writes to Timothy, there will be, and, and Peter writes as well, there will be all, so many false teachers that it's just confusing. If I can paraphrase and extrapolate a little bit. It becomes confusing. There's chaos with all the false teaching that's going on. And at the same time, in the midst of all the variety of false teaching, there is the opportunity to pick and choose. And Paul writes that there will be people who are nothing more. They're charmed by these teachings because their ears are being tickled. They just want to hear what they want to hear. And maybe it's to go back to the other examples in John 6 and Acts 8 because they love and they just want God's provision and power, but they don't want God's heart. They don't want the person of God. They just want his provision and his power right here, right now. And they're charmed by the false promise and philosophy that God only wants to bless you and loves and accepts you no matter what. And that is a lie and deception from the pit of hell. They are ear itchers who, as Paul says, they are nothing, and again, in a sense, they're nothing more than people who have a form of godliness, but they deny the power of that godliness, of it. They just have a form. They just look so good. They look so religious. They look so powerful. They look so influential. And they are because they're satisfying these temporary desires of people that are charmed by these temporary things. In the end, these false teachers, all they do is, <laughs> all they do is preach. And all these people who listen, all they want is an easy, trouble-free life without conflict or challenge to their faith. And they want, to, they, want, they want to always be happy at the expense of offending God with their sin tolerance. It's all around us now. I was troubled, deeply, deeply troubled yesterday, probably around 10 in the morning or so, when I walked out on Lexington Green in Lexington, Massachusetts, and I stood in the middle, and I looked around me, and I was realizing the history of our nation, and realizing where we were, and what would go on around, even in the town of Lexington, 300 years ago, where the gospel was preached, where the minister, the word of God, was held high in the community. And now I looked around at churches with banners strung all over them that do nothing but tickle and charm people's fancies at the expense of their souls. I was troubled. Oh, it was a beautiful day. And it looked so nice. But once you enter that church, there's nothing but rot and decay there and a false gospel. I don't have to guess. I know. And I stand on God's word with that. I won't tell you what they were. Because I'm almost offended to say what they said on some of the churches. Charming people. And people are charmed 
by what is convenient for the day. See, Nebuchadnezzar is not changed, just like a lot of these people. In fact, Paul says to Timothy, there are these false teachers who teach. They go around and they worm their way into, into these women's minds and hearts. And why he targets them, that's another discussion. But, but he, he goes there, and these people are always learning, but they never come to the knowledge of the truth. Think about that. That sounds like our world today. Am I missing something? That sounds like our world today. Always learning, never coming to the knowledge of the truth. Unbelievable. I'm sorry, I am just, my heart, it's just, I am going for it because you got to hear this. And Nebuchadnezzar is not changed. He's tickled again with joy, the wonder of the one true God, worshipped by Daniel and his friends. But it, but it, but it gets to his head after a time. Because in chapter 3 in Daniel, if you look in your Bible, after some time, he decides based on this dream that Daniel reveals to him and what it means, that it's all about him. He determines it's all about him. I don't know how many years pass by or time, but, but, but he decides, I'm all that. And not only desires, but he deserves and he convinces himself that he deserves to be worshipped. Oh, boy. So what does he do? What does he do? He builds a 90-foot-tall gold statue of himself. And by executive order, he was the king after all, or decree, or mandate, or whatever you want to call it, he demands that he is worshipped and his greatness is acknowledged. Today, we have many Nebuchadnezzars that are calling and even demanding in the name of good reason and self-defined goodness to worship them. To respond at their beck and call. I want to give you just three right now because when we talk about idols or idolatry, there are a myriad. There, anything that is elevated above God and there's many definitions. It's idolatry when you worship it and you adore and you place it there. And you replace the truth with a lie. That's idolatry. Self-worship is, I mean, self is that first. It's that first 90-foot tall statue that is universal across this globe within humanity. And it's called self. And it is shiny in our eyes, and yet it's actually so dull. But we make it look so good, and we raise it so high. See, it's, it's the idol of self. We will never stop this battle and this war that goes on between us and ourselves to worship ourselves and God. Self-worship manifests itself in three primary ways. First one is that it manifests in self-preservation. Self-worship always manifests itself in self-preservation. Well, what do you mean? i got to live, i got to survive. No, no, no. I, this, it's more than just the physical, physiological, biological survival and making sure you live for a long time and taking care of yourself. It's more than that. It's your ego, it's your emotions, it's your, it's your finances, it's everything about you and ultimately your soul. But it's you and your, your image and your identity and so on and so forth. And self-preservation is usually... Fear and anxiety driven. It is. 
The second manifestation of self-worship is self-promotion. I need to say, and again, I, I will say this again, to not be misunderstood, I have never said, I never will say, at least not yet, I have no problem with tech and the different social media outlets. I have no problem with that. But I will be prophetic and say, watch out. Watch out. I know we use everything, but watch out. And the reason I say that is because self-promotion is, is manifests more in no other place more than on social media. And I am telling you, it never ends and it's only increasing. Be careful with the self-worship that goes on through self-promotion on social media. Don't get trapped yourself. Don't erect a 90-foot-tall golden idol and demand worship of yourself. And thirdly, self-worship manifests itself in self-satisfaction. <laughs> it's proven. The idea that it's all about us and that we want self-satisfaction, it's proven by our need for convenience and comfort and pleasure. You know, let me just... You would think that after we've gone through this season of COVID and we're still in it, I guess, right? That, that, that things, people's attitudes, hearts, things would change and turning to God. And, uh, it doesn't appear that way in many ways. In fact, more than ever, people are so self-absorbed and it's about self-satisfaction. And Paul says it in the last days, people will be lovers of themselves and of pleasure more than of God. And it's so evident because now we live in a time and we have the opportunity with the resources at our disposal. I will do what I want when I feel like it. I will buy what I want when I feel like it. And it doesn't matter. And I will do whatever I want when I want. I don't care. I'm going to travel here. I'm going to do this. I'm going to disregard that. I'm going to buy this. I'm going to. And it's all about me. I'm not saying those things are wrong of themselves. Don't misunderstand me. But it is unbelievable how this self-satisfaction in our day and age, even now, reveals how much self-worship there is in our world. That's a terrible idol. There's this idol, and, I, and if I could take the liberty, there's this idol of science. Again, you know me. If you know me, I love science. I love the sciences. Don't misunderstand me to say that science is to be shunned. I am not saying that. But science has become the first cause in place of God who is the first cause. The creation or the laws of nature that are all around us have been created by God, but they have been elevated to a height that has usurped God, the creator of all things. I'm not mad at science. I don't hate science. It's a great thing. It's a great discipline. But don't let science be worshipped by you. Don't bow down to it. And the third, I could go on and on, but the third, and again, I have no problem speaking prophetically, and I feel like I am. You can take care for what you want. The third thing, and the third idol that is starting to be worshipped, and I believe will be worshipped as we get closer to Jesus' coming, is the state. You can disagree. We can argue outside of this context face-to-face. -face, 
But I will tell you something. State worship is on its way. It's on its way. And I am not backing down. And I believe that with all my heart. And I guess I'm warning you. And don't ever say I didn't. You know, be on high alert here. Be on high alert here. Government is an institution that is established by God. Amen? Amen. But it is not God, the ultimate authority. I didn't hear amens. It is not God, the ultimate authority. In fact, Daniel says earlier in chapter 2 and verse 20, after God reveals to him the dream, he says, praise be to God, the, the name of God forever and ever. Wisdom and power are His. He changes times and seasons. He disposes, He deposes kings and raises others up. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to the discerning. Listen, don't assume I imply anything specific as it relates to our world currently. I only know that God, not the state, is our provider, He's our protector, and He's our power who enables us to live in accordance with God's standards, the state cannot do that. Do not worship the state. But boy, is some of that happening. You know, it all looks so good on the outside. It all looks so good, so appealing, so attractive. Where we're, it's, it's, there's a magnetism to some of the, the good-sounding things and the long-term Utopian promises of whatever life could be on earth without God, by the way. It's like this. You go to stop and shop and you go and I go in season and I and, and if I go or, or wherever it is and I honey crisp apples are in season, whatever that is, a little later, right? And I go and, and I find that whole bunch of all the different varieties of apples. I go to honey crisp and there's this big honey crisp apple. And I'm looking around, there's a whole bunch of them stacked, and I'm looking, I'm looking, I'm looking, and I'm going to find the perfect one, or at least the six or half dozen, whatever, because they're like five bucks a pound for crying out loud now. But anyway, and I go and I take one, and it looks so good, and I feel it, you know, gently, because I don't want to bruise it for somebody else, right, Ron? And so I'm feeling, he's laughing because he knows he does the same thing. And we're, we're, we're feeling, and then I'm looking, and the coloring is perfect. Then I bring it home, and I'm so excited, I'm charmed by this apple. And all of a sudden, I take a bite. And I take a bite, and my face turns sour and foul. Oh, my goodness. And I look down, and out of the apple, I see a little thing going like this. Got a little friend in there. And behind the friend is nothing but rot and decay. That's what all this is. When we start to elevate these idols, these, and, and the, the, again, just a few, there are many, whether it's self or whether it's science or whether it's the state, it all looks good, but inside, when there's no God and there's no real power, the authority's not there, it's all rotten and gets you nowhere. Oh, brothers and sisters, be careful. But what happens with the three fine Hebrew men of God who hear about the king's worship order? It's very simple. And we are called today, as we draw closer here at the end of our service, to, to emulate these guys. We've got to emulate Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. What, what do they do? What happens when they hear about the king's worship order? They're not charmed by Nebuchadnezzar and his government's security, wealth, and education. 
That's all great, but they're not charmed by that. It doesn't mean they're not important, but they're not charmed by it. Instead, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in chapter 3, they're an example that we need to urgently, my friends, urgently emulate. First of all, you need to emulate this mindset. You need to know, like they did, that they were chosen, called people who were consecrated to God. If you're going to emulate, if you're going to be like them, and we must, we've got to know in our heart of hearts that we are called, chosen people who are consecrated to God. We belong to God. They knew they were God's. The clear teaching of Paul in his epistles is that God's people are chosen and they're set apart for his service and his glory alone. Peter says that we are a chosen generation. We're a royal priesthood. And for what purpose? So that we could declare forth the excellencies, the glories of God. Not us, not science, not the government. Those things are all great. But that's not what it's about. It's all about God and His glory. And not only are they have this mindset where they know and a conviction that they know, but because they know, secondly, who they are, as soon as they hear this order to bow down to the golden statue, they do not comply. They know they're consecrated, and when they hear this order, they do not comply. The, to know the first two of the ten, they know the first two of the Ten Commandments. In Exodus chapter 20, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. Oh man, it, this is serious stuff here. Their consecration, their consecration was the foundation of their conviction. We are not going to comply. Not if I got to bow down to a golden statue and worship that. No way. And then, I love this part of the, of the narrative. And then, when they don't do that, it doesn't even say they didn't do that. But you know how we know they didn't do that? Because somebody tells on them. Somebody tells on them. They go to Nebuchadnezzar and they say, Hey, did you know you have this order, but there's the three Hebrew guys. They didn't go out when the music played, and they didn't bow down as you ordered. It's a mandate. It's a decree, and they didn't go and do it. What are you going to do about it, King Nebuchadnezzar? It's your law. And so then Nebuchadnezzar is furious. The Bible records he freaks out. He gets upset, and then he calls them to, to himself, and he comes to have a conversation. And you know what he does? It's unbelievable. They, he, they get narked on, right? And then... Nebuchadnezzar is furious, but he gives them a second chance. <laughs> uh, this is, he gives them a second chance. How gracious of him, isn't it? To bow down and worship. He says, listen, here's how it's going to be. Is it true? You can read it in the Bible. Is it true that you're not, you didn't bow down? Well, yeah, of course not. And listen, I'm going to tell you, I'm going to make a deal with you. Here's the, here's the deal. If you choose, if, you, if you're ready, he says, if you're ready to bow down, he says, great, everything is good. But if you're not, see that furnace? That's where you're going. That's where you're going. If you don't bow down. And that's what he tells them. He gives them a second chance to comply, but because they wouldn't comply and their conviction it was so strong, they knew that they were consecrated to God and His worship alone. Over time, after they had given a second chance, 
they not only don't comply, but they are determined to not compromise. They already, just, they already didn't obey, right? They didn't comply, but they're not going to compromise now. Isn't it true that you're not complying in the worship of my idol? Verse 16 and verse to verse 18 in chapter 3. Here's what they say. King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. Can you imagine? I don't have to answer to you about that. and defend. I'm not even going to give you an answer about that. It seems so disrespectful. But it's not, because think about it. They addressed him as Nebuchadnezzar, and further on, you'll see. It says, if we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it, and he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. They're showing respect. But even if he does not, we want you to know, again, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. We're not compromising. They could say, we do not need to defend ourselves before you this matter because they had a conviction, they did not comply, and they were not going to compromise. They determined that there was no budging. There is no place for compromise when it comes to the truth and the gospel. When it comes to the teachings about the one true God, that is, there's this revisionist historical theology that's going on now. There's no room for that. There's no time for that. There, we, just, there, we can't have that. It's a compromise. They determined to not even entertain the option of bowing down in worship. Now that's loyalty and devotion to God. That is true faith and conviction. Let me just tell you, God, God, please help us to be like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Now. Not tomorrow. Now. Please. 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 Please hear me when I say this. Please. And don't miss what I'm going to say for your consideration right now. What if they said, well, it's not a big deal. We'll just do it once. Today. Oh, well, you know, it's probably not going to be forever. So, once a day for the next week, and maybe it'll all be over. And the slide picks up speed. The compromise grows. And before they would even notice, a year, then two, and maybe even more goes by, and they're still bowing. What if they said this? One more thing. What if they said this? Well, eh, let's talk it out, guys. Listen, you know, we know it's not about posture. It's about the heart. It's not about the posture. It's about the heart. We're not really worshiping Nebuchadnezzar, are we? Because our minds and our hearts are focused on Yahweh. Listen. Going through the motions to fit in is a compromise when you know God's unchanging standard. You may not like that, but it's the truth. You may say, well, but it's not comfortable or it's not convenient. 
Remember, it's not about you, you self-absorbed person, me included. Here's what happens. As a result of their consecration, they decide not to comply and they're determined not to compromise. They were not consumed. That's the end of the story. They're not consumed as a result of their unwillingness to comply or compromise. And when Nebuchadnezzar throws him into the fire that's made more intense, he looks in there and he says in verse 24 and 25, didn't I throw three guys in there that were bound? But there's four in there walking around freely. And he has a conversation. Think about this. It's almost lunacy that he's talking to people that are walking around in a hot furnace and having a conversation. And then he tells them, guys, come out of the fire. And they walk out. And the Bible records there's no burn on them and they didn't even smell like smoke in verse 27. Nothing! Let me, let me ask you, what is the evidence that these guys made the right decision? What is the evidence that they made the right decision? Is it that they weren't consumed? No, it's not. It is not the evidence that they made the right decision, that they weren't consumed. You know what the right the, the evidence is? It's simply this. That God got the credit. God got the credit. Again. Nebuchadnezzar is charmed again, if I could be honest. And he makes this declaration. He's blown away. Nebuchadnezzar praises God in chapter 3 there. He praises God. And then he decrees that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego's God cannot be spoken against. Because if he is, gruesome things will happen to them. And he even said that there is no other God that can rescue like their God. And then Nebuchadnezzar not only does that, but he promotes these three men to higher roles and positions in the province of Babylon. So God could get even more glory through them, I believe. The evidence of the right decision is that God gets the glory, not that you weren't consumed, although you get that too. And you know, when you're in that fire and things get hot and you're not compromising and the heat is put on, Remember, God doesn't always show up to get you out of trouble, but He'll always get into trouble with you. Oh, He will. I close with these questions. This morning, are you charmed by all the good things God has done and does in your life? And that's it. Are you seeking His hand and not His heart? Have you been, or maybe you are right now, disenchanted with God when things don't go well and things get hot and the heat is turned up in your life? Or are you consecrated to God and His standard of worship this morning? You either are or you're not. And I invite you to emulate Shadrach, Meshach, and Benny. Know that you're consecrated. Don't comply when you're told to worship someone or something other than God Himself. Don't compromise when it keeps getting pushed on you. Because know that when the heat gets turned on, you will not be consumed. But I'll tell you what, like they said, even if you are consumed, God is going to get the credit when you hold the line. Let's worship Him. And let's make sure that we lead others to worship Him as well. Lord, as we go this morning, 
I pray that you would take these words, this narrative. Holy Spirit, do something in our hearts. Lord, those places you have pricked, help us, Lord, to allow you to clean up and help us to surrender them as well. Lord, we love you and thank you. Help us to worship you and only you, the one true God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God bless you. Have a great day. Let's be true to God and God alone. Amen.